Welcome to the Restaurant Realty in 10. 10 minutes of uncensored straight talk for restaurant entrepreneurs. Weekly, the Restaurant Realty in 10 dives into restaurant operations, facilities, real estate, and investments. Welcome to the Restaurant Realty in 10. This is Michael Carroll, your host, and I've got DC Reeves in the program today. And DC is a microbrew expert. He developed a handbook called the Microbrewery Handbook in November of 2019, which can be found everywhere. So if you're in the microbrew world, pick that up and contribute to the DC Reeve Kid Fund. One of his concepts that we're going to talk about today is Perfect Plain Brewery. So welcome to the program, DC. Thanks for having me. Let's dive right in. Tell us how you came up with the concept for Perfect Plain, how you built it, and where it is. Sure. It really came from my previous life, which was uh, I spent a decade as a college football writer, covering Florida State and Alabama. And so with that job, you travel all over the country and, and cover road games. And, you know, before Alabama played on a Saturday, I'd be in Knoxville or Baton Rouge or in the case of Florida State, Raleigh, North Carolina on a Friday night. And as this trend of craft breweries continued to build 2010, 2011, 12, you started to see this trend of amazing kind of industry forward, pushing the envelope craft breweries, not just your normal small mom and pop place way out in the middle of nowhere. So really, I'm no chemist. I'm no brewer. You never want to drink anything that I make. But I know just enough about the process to you know, be, I guess, dangerous. But the bottom line was I said, hey, man, I love where I'm from, Pensacola, Florida. We don't have something like this. How do I take this really cool thing that I fell in love with in these cities? Birmingham is another good example and bring it back to where I'm from. So I don't think I would have opened another business. I don't think I would have opened a restaurant. Um, it was that I was really a big crappier fan, and I just felt like I was trying to fill a void that I was seeing pop up all over the Southeast, especially. Well, and, I, and by the way, I've been a craft beer fan most of my life. And coming from San Diego and Phoenix, yeah. you know, we would go to Colorado quite a bit way back when. And I just remember in Colorado, there was a whole bunch of microbrewers back then that were very, very unique. Now, some of them became these large restaurant concepts that, you know, maybe similar to a Gordon Biersch, yeah. but they had a whole bunch of concepts that were microbrewer-esque, but you really didn't know if they were brewing the beer on site, right? right? Exactly. So they kind of had the great beer lineup. They were private labeled. Now, again, whether or not they produced it at a central location, then shipped them out, you, you never had an idea. But we did know that their beer was better, right? right? And so that was the key. They made a better small batch concept. So you come back to Pensacola, you decide you want to open a microbrewery, but you have to find somebody that makes a good product. Just because everybody makes beer right. doesn't mean it's good. Right. So how did you figure out who is the right person to partner with to be your brewmaster? A couple of funny things have happened, just like the evolution of any industry or anything that becomes popular is early on, you know, if you if you open a brewery in 2007, 2008, chances are you're the only brewery in town. And so your level of quality expectation didn't need to be as high because it was unique. You know, you were, hey, you were the only guy making beer in your city. And of course, as we get to 2020, that's completely changed. And Absolutely. I talk a lot about in the book is that, you know, now it's really about the strong surviving in a lot of different ways. But to your point, I joke, we opened in November of 2017 and I feel like we're 10 years old. I mean, within our industry, it's changed um, so much and, and how much harder the price of entry is even three years later. I mean, if I wanted to open up a, a microbrewery, I mean, of course, it depends on the size. Sure. But, you know, you have a building, whether you own it or rent it, there's a cost there. Yep. But then the equipment is unique. So yep. talk to me a little bit about 
how you selected your brewer, and yes. then each brewer might have their own desirability of what they want to purchase. Correct. I just got lucky. I worked at, when I was covering Florida State, I became friends with a guy that had homebrewed for a long time. That happened to be our IT guy. So after an FSU game, we're shooting a video on the field. He was the one shooting and editing it, and we became friends. And uh, we always joked. I was like, I want to bring you back and open a place in Pensacola one day. And we both knew that was never going to happen. Um, he moved to Asheville, North Carolina, which, of course, is Beer City, USA now for craft beer. And uh, I moved on to Tuscaloosa, never thinking that, you know, our worlds would collide. And so um, I think I show a slide in orientation, which is the text I sent him in 2015 that said, um, why don't we just open that brewery we talked about and say, F it. And, um, and so it took us. Uh, about two years, uh, that whole process, we pulled 17 permits. That's what it takes uh, between federal states. Is that and, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you all the way down to zoning and whatever, uh, you know, the sidewalk for the state of Florida, all those different things. So we added it up. I did for the book, 17 permits. So Reed and I really became a great yin-yang team. And it's, it's helped us advance our business a lot faster than normal. Because to your second point about equipment and the price of entry, what happens a lot of times, again, this is in the book, a lot of times, you know, a baker opens a bakery, a chef opens a restaurant, a brewer opens a brewery, and that's the most common thing. And there's plenty of success stories of that. It's not to say that that's sure, not a good thing, sure. but sometimes you have blind spots. You know, I certainly would have had a blind spot on the brewing side if I tried to just open this more as the business and marketing guy. And so, and Reed would have had the same problem. Sure. Um, and what you see a lot of fallacies that happen, especially in craft beer, is, you know, the brewer wants the Cadillac equipment for 300,000 and leaves breadcrumbs for the tap room. And now the vibe's not fun. And now it's too small. The building was undercapitalized. The bill that was undercapitalized and you've got this real nice equipment that making beer that nobody's drinking. You yeah. Know? And so the number one cause of failure in craft beer is undercapitalization. Yes. And, and especially so because here's the trade-off. We want to talk dollars and cents in craft beer. The trade-off is it's a high price to play because it's all of that equipment. You hire a brewer. You're becoming a manufacturer. You're starting two businesses. You are manufacturing and you're selling. So if you can overcome that and you are not undercapitalized, what you've created is this e enormously large gross margin that, you know, a beer cost me 50 at, even at our scale, uh, which is still very small in the grand scheme. Um, you know, beer cost me 50 or 60 cents to make and it sells for six or 650. So, yeah. you know, that, so you're paying the price to play to create that market. Yes. What happens is people undersize their equipment because they don't have enough money. They put their building in a bad location because they don't have enough money or they don't save up enough in smart ways that are going to bring people in. And so what's going to happen between COVID is going to intensify this, but uh, it was already going to happen pre-COVID is the saturation has arrived in craft beer. And now how do you treat your customers? How do you run your business? How efficient are you? Do you eliminate turnover? All of those things now come into play that five, six years ago, you were the only guy in town. Yeah. So you, you were able to get away with all those things. So that's what I think is really changing in the landscape. Of you know, uh, Quentin Studer brings a Civicon event to Pensacola every so often, at least monthly, but sometimes more than that. And I don't remember who it was, but there was this person that one of his metrics of a great community was the number of microbrews that it had. Yeah. He made a correlation that, do you remember this guy? Do you remember his? James Fowles. Okay, so yeah. tell us about that correlation sure. that you recall. Yeah, actually, I talked with him recently. He's a huge Pensacola fan. He uh, writes for The Atlantic, which, of course, is one of the oldest 
most prestigious publications in the country and did a story on us during the pandemic, actually. That's why we, we talked was about this whole, you know, crazy world that we're now in. But yeah, that what the correlation he saw was typically when you have a market that supports a lot of craft breweries, you typically have a great community engagement. You know, um, that's typically the people that are coming to support it. Might be tourists, of course, we have plenty of those, but but also there's just something I always joke, we have a creative license to do stuff in a brewery that you that make no sense at a bar, you know, or at a restaurant. You know, if we wanted to bring yoga with goats in it, it'd be like, oh yeah, perfect planes doing that. <laughs> if that was in like a thousand square foot bar, that would you'd probably be like, this is weird. You know, yeah. you guys don't open until four. Well, it's still know? weird, but it's acceptable. Exactly. Yeah. So I joke. and encouraged. So exactly. We I mean we've done everything. But who doesn't want to drink with goats? Exactly. I mean, honestly. Well, we've done craft nights, we do drag shows, we do ticketed events, um, We've done uh, every Halloween. We do a pet costume contest. I mean, anything you can think of, we can do. And in this weird way, and I think it's it comes back to that communal community feeling. Is that you know, if you're a craft brewery, that's what you want to create. Is that like this feels like a home? You know, that this is we're all kind of locals in this together, and we that's why we do so many community based efforts, and we're doing a couple of those right now, and have throughout the pandemic. And you know, because I think. It, Community is a two-way street. It's it's easy to say as a business owner, oh, hey, we're community-driven. Like, uh, come in and buy beer from me. You know, what do we do when times are tough? Or what are we? How are we trying to be helpful to the rest of our community? And that we hope that people see that. And I'm sure you can't track it, but I'm sure that that certainly helps us in business because people see the, the efforts that we try to make and help. Our so, quick fire round as we as we close down. Yes. So, if you had to build a perfect plan again. Give me a dollar amount that you would budget to rebuild it. Okay. If I had to rebuild it, I would say, including buying the building, I'd probably say $2 million. Okay. So $2 million. Uh, if you didn't have to buy the building and you were leasing the building, okay. how much did you allocate in that $2 million for the building? Yeah. Uh, probably a million for the building. So I would say, yeah, if you want to do it right, have enough working capital, all that stuff. And we're a 10 barrel system, by the way. So if you're listening out there, that it's, I would say a million dollars. Okay. Second thing is. We kind of heard that your cost of goods sold for the beer is about 10%. Mm -hmm. And so tell me about labor as a percent of sales. Yeah, labor as a percent of sales overall. We still are in that same range. I try to keep it a little bit below 20%. Okay. You know, I mean, I don't want to be anywhere above 23, 24, of course. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if I'm 15 to 20. All right. So other than cost of goods sold and labor, what is your next largest thing if you don't have rent? Because rent, of course, would be a factor. Sure. Well, first, we make a big investment into our people, including health insurance. But I would say we make a big investment in marketing and specifically programming. Okay. And so you could argue that's labor because that is, you know, that I'm, what I'm saying is I'm willing to hire a dedicated person that's who wakes up every morning and says, how do I get people in this building today? Yeah. You know, and that's probably a little unique or different compared to, you know, what a restaurant may, you know, farm out social media or things That's like that. Right. I'm always going to have marketing and programming some version of in-house because um, it's that important to our business. Well, that's DC Reeves with Perfect Plain Brewery. Pick up his book, Microbrewery Handbook. Thank you for coming in. If you'll give a plug for your book so we know where people can buy it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. The Microbrewery Handbook, you can get it anywhere books are sold online, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Amazon. And even if you're not, if you just own a restaurant, you own a bar, at least half that book pertains uh, to, to situations. It's not too beer specific. Um, so uh, I think there's a lot of information in there that can help people in the hospitality business. So I appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk. All right, DC, and thank you. We're going to have you back. DC also owns 
a a cocktail concept called Garden and Grain, and he's got some other things working. So we're going to have him back to talk about each of those. Thank you for listening to the Restaurant Realty in 10. If you're interested in restaurants, whether operations, facilities, buying, leasing, or investment, the Restaurant Realty in 10 is for you. Please subscribe to this podcast, and you can also visit therestaurantrealty.com for show notes, topics, and additional information.